Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a classic black cherry white claw. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a margarita, and on this week's episode, we are going to look at the murder of Lacey Peterson at the hands of her husband, Scott Peterson. This case sent shockwaves through the country and sparked new questions about how to protect victims, especially those who are pregnant, from violence. Lacey Peterson was born Lacey Rocha on May 4, 1975, to Sharon and Dennis Rocha in Escalon, California. Lacey attended California Polytechnic State University, and while she was there, she met Scott Peterson at a restaurant that he worked at in Morro Bay in mid-1994. Scott Peterson was born on October 24, 1972, in San Diego, California. In 1990, Scott attended Arizona State University on a partial golf scholarship and later transferred to California Polytech. Lacey and Scott dated for two years and married in 1997. After they both graduated, they opened a sports bar called The Shack. Business was initially slow, but gradually improved. They decided to sell the business in 2001 and moved to Modesto, California in order to start a family. Once in Modesto, Lacey started working as a substitute teacher and Scott worked at Trade Corp USA earning around $5,000 a month before taxes. Lacey and Scott shared the news of her pregnancy with their family in 2002 with Lacey's due date being February 10th, 2003. In November 2002, Scott met Am Frey, who was told by Scott that he was single. Frey worked as a massage therapist in Fresno and was introduced to Scott through one of his friends. On December 23rd, 2002, Lacey went with Scott to get his hair cut at Lacey's sister's Amy's hair salon. Scott told them that he would be playing golf the next day on Christmas Eve. Lacey spoke with her mother that evening around 8.30 p.m. Scott told the police that he left the house the following day around 9.30 a.m. to go fishing and that that was the last time he saw his wife. Around 10.30 a.m., one of the Peterson's neighbors reported that she saw Lacey's golden retriever in the street and returned the dog to the Peterson house. Scott stated he returned home around 5.15 p.m. and noticed that Lacey was not home. Lacey's car was still in the driveway and Scott said that he showered immediately due to getting wet from fishing. At the time of her disappearance, Lacey was seven and a half months pregnant with a son that they planned on naming Connor. There are conflicting reports about who reported her missing. According to ABC News, Scott reported Lacey missing. On the other hand, there are reports that it was Lacey's stepfather, Ron Grantisky, who first alerted the police. On Christmas Eve night, the police arrived at the Peterson home. They observed that Lacey's keys, wallet, and sunglasses were in her purse in a closet. The dining table was set for Christmas dinner. One detective noted a phone book opened to a defense attorney. Modesto detectives John Bueller and Alan Broncini led the investigation and questioned Scott that evening. Bueller told ABC News in 2017, quote, I suspected Scott when I first met him. Didn't mean he did it, but I was a little bit thrown off by his calm, cool demeanor and his lack of questioning. He wasn't, quote, Will you call me back? Can I have one of your cards? What are you guys doing now? End quote. Scott initially told the cops that he was golfing, but later changed his story to say that he was fishing at the Berkeley Marina. 
At 2.15 p.m., he left a message for Lacey stating, quote, Hey, beautiful, it's 2.15. I'm leaving Berkeley, end quote. The initial search and later vigil were organized by the immediate family and friends. In the first two days, up to 900 people were involved in looking for Lacey. Modesto police and firefighters carried out an extensive search along Dry Creek the day after Lacey's disappearance. The search came to include helicopters equipped with searchlights, police mounted on horseback and bicycles, canine units, and water rescue units on rafts. Lacey's disappearance eventually garnered media attention. At a press conference, Detective Broncini said that police did not believe that Lacey decided to leave without contacting her family, commenting, quote, that is completely out of character for her, end quote. A reward for information about Lacey's disappearance reached $500,000, and through family and community efforts, nearly 1,500 volunteers were mobilized to aid in the search. Despite their best efforts, Lacey was not found. During the investigation, it was discovered that Scott had had multiple extramarital affairs, including at least one that Lacey knew about. Amber Frey informed the police of her relationship with Scott on December 30th, 2002. Shortly after discovering he was a person of interest in Lacey's disappearance and agreed to phone him while police recorded their conversation. She informed the police that he told her on December 9th, two weeks before Lacey's disappearance, that he was a widower and that it would be his first Christmas without his wife. On April 13, 2003, the body of a male baby was found by a couple walking their dog along the San Francisco Bay near Berkeley. The umbilical cord was still attached. The Associated Press reported through an anonymous source that the child had a nylon cord wrapped around his neck and cut marks on his body. The following day, the body of a recently pregnant woman was found one mile from where the baby was found. The body was badly decomposed and the woman had been decapitated with her limbs missing. On April 18, 2003, it was confirmed through DNA testing that the bodies found were that of Lacey and Connor. The exact date and cause of Lacey's death could not be determined due to the state of her body when it was found. It could also not be determined whether Connor was born alive or died in utero and expelled after Lacey's death. The forensic examiner did find that Lacey had two cracked ribs and that Connor had signs of being born alive. Scott Peterson was arrested on April 18, 2003 at the La Joya Golf Course. While he claimed to be golfing, the police found nearly $15,000 in cash, 12 Viagra tablets, survival gear, camping equipment, several changes of clothes, four cell phones, and two driver's license, that of his and his brother's. Peterson's family claimed that he was living in his car, but the police saw this as an indicator that he was planning to flee to Mexico. Scott was charged with two felony counts of murder with premeditation and special circumstances. He pled not guilty. His trial began on June 1, 2004. On November 12, 2004, Scott Peterson was convicted of first-degree murder for his wife's death and second-degree murder for Connor's death. Judge Alfred A. DeLucci sentenced Scott to death, calling the murder of Lacey quote, cruel, uncaring, heartless, and callous, end quote. The deaths of Lacey and Connor Peterson led to the passage of the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, which is also known as Lacey and Connor's Law. On April 1st, 2004, Sharon Rocha and her husband, Ron Gransky, were in attendance at the White House when President George W. Bush signed the bill into law. The act provides that under federal law, any person who causes death or injury to an unborn child while in the commission of a crime upon a pregnant woman will be charged with a separate offense. 
On October 21, 2005, Stanislaus County, California Superior Court Judge Roger Buchesny ruled that Scott was not entitled to collect on Lacey's $250,000 life insurance policy, having been convicted of her murder. Under California state law, criminals may not profit from insurance policies. On December 19, 2005, the money was given to her mother, Sharon Rocha, as the executor of her estate. The California 5th District Court of Appeals in Fresno later affirmed the trial court's decision on October 31, 2007. In March of 2019, California Governor Gavin Newsom placed a stay on all executions within the state to last for the duration of his tenure. On August 24, 2020, in a 7-0 decision, the Supreme Court of California upheld Peterson's conviction but overturned his death sentence because Peterson's trial judge had dismissed jurors who opposed capital punishment without asking them whether they could put their views aside. Prosecutors initially stated that they would retry the penalty phase, but subsequently reversed that decision in June 2021. On December 8th, California Superior Court Judge Ann Christine Masulo resentenced Peterson to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the first-degree murder of Lacey and a concurrent sentence of 15 years to life for the second-degree murder of Connor. So, Jenny, what are your thoughts on this case? To me, when I think of it, it's so in like American culture now. This was a very media focused case. I do think it was for the best that Scott was resentenced regardless of whether or not I think he did it. The prosecution didn't really seem to have enough to charge him and ask for a death sentence. That being said, I think he is very suspicious and I am more inclined to say he's guilty. However, there are other theories that people have brought up that I think are very interesting and compelling and I don't think the police really looked into them. So I'd be curious, Del, what you think on those. But I think it's so interesting that this caught so many people attention. I know we've talked about missing white woman syndrome, but I think what really got people's attention and what was so shocking and upsetting was that it was a pregnant woman who was potentially murdered by her husband, her child's father. And there's something obviously very upsetting and egregious and something people can maybe relate to about it too. It's a really awful case and I'm sure it's really hard for Lacey's family to see Scott's sentence get lessened even though like I said I do agree with it that he shouldn't be given the death penalty. I'm sure it's hard for them. It's like re-traumatizing for them every time his name is in the media. What about you? So I definitely think that Scott Peterson is guilty, but I agree with you that based on the evidence and just my own personal feelings on the death penalty, that he should have been given life in prison without the possibility of parole. I do think that is the right sentence for this case. I don't know if I'm really compelled by the other theories in this case. I think it's one of those things where sometimes the simplest answer is what actually happened. I think that another thing that convinces me that Scott did it was how calm and cool he was throughout the whole ordeal. I remember when I was first learning about the case and then researching it for this episode, I went back and watched those press conferences and yeah, he was so calm, almost chillingly in a way where it's like your wife is missing she's pregnant with your child how are you so calm I do understand that some people are not as reactive or emotional but it seems like he was only getting in front of the cameras and pleading for her return because that 
is what was expected of him, not because it's something that he actually wanted to do. I feel like if you compare him to any other of those type of press conferences, you're not going to see that demeanor. You're going to see people pleading. You're going to see people begging. I feel like for his press conference, he seemed to already know the conclusion of this case because he's the one that did it. He definitely was very suspicious. And at one of the vigils, wasn't he texting Amber Frey and like saying he was in Paris? Yes. One of the reasons why Amber came forward to the police was because she saw Scott at the visual for Lacey and put two and two together that, you know, he had lied to her. And so she went to the police to give really compelling evidence against him. And she was considered the star witness against him at his trial. This case sparked discussion about the violence that many pregnant women experience. Pregnancy places women in a vulnerable state and this violence has devastating effects for the woman and her child. Domestic violence kills more pregnant women each year than any other cause. Nearly 20% of women experience violence during pregnancy with pregnant adolescents and women with unintended pregnancies at an increased risk. Several studies reported adverse outcomes of domestic violence, including increase in fetal injury, perinatal death, prenatal death and early neonatal death, preterm birth, low birth weight, miscarriage, placental abruption, premature rupture of membranes, rupture of urethra, bleeding, prenatal hospitalization, infection, and adverse mental health consequences and maternal behavioral risks to perinatal outcomes including depression, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, suicide and suicide attempts, delayed entry into prenatal care, poor maternal nutrition, and use of tobacco and alcohol. Jenny, what are your thoughts on this and what steps can be taken to protect pregnant women? I think any type of domestic violence is wrong, but to me, violence against pregnant people is incredibly low and vile. Like you said, they're already very vulnerable. Stress and having to worry about violence in your life is the last thing you need when you're carrying a child. As for steps, I'm not really sure what I would recommend other than just I think our country taking domestic violence more seriously and people feeling more comfortable coming forward and asking for help or protection. Maybe OBGYNs and other like family health doctors, but maybe some more training. I think it would be great to have resources like that with domestic violence hotline numbers, or this is an example of what a domestic violence relationship looks like, having stuff like that readily available to people in offices. I think doctors really could play an important role for patients in this type of situation scenario. What do you think? I definitely agree with you. I think that when it comes to violence against pregnant women, there are avenues to help them, but I think their access to it gets cut off. I definitely think there are steps that we can take. Whether this country is ready to take those steps, I'm not too sure. One question that people asked during this case was whether it mattered if Connor was born alive when determining the punishment Scott Peterson should receive. In addition to the federal Lacey and Connors law, many states have fetal homicide laws that seek to answer this question. They typically are worded in a way that defines a baby in utero as a person with exceptions for abortion. 
An example from Alabama law defines a quote-unquote person for purposes of criminal homicide or assault to include an unborn child in utero at any stage of development, regardless of viability, and specifies that nothing in the act shall make it a crime to perform or obtain an abortion that is otherwise legal. Proponents on both sides of the abortion topic support increasing penalties for violence against pregnant women. However, they tend to focus on different aspects. Pro-life advocates typically support legislation that defines the fetus as a person under fetal homicide laws or otherwise confers rights or protections upon the fetus or unborn child. Those supporting these laws say that the lives of the pregnant woman and the fetus should be protected. They assert that fetal homicide laws justly criminalize these cases and address both the unborn children and their mothers. Pro-choice advocates typically focus on the harm done to a pregnant woman and the subsequent loss of her pregnancy, but not on the rights of the fetus. They tend to support policies that do not confirm rights or personal status upon a fetus. Such advocates focus on enhancing penalties for an assault on a pregnant woman and recognizing her as the victim. There are currently 38 states that have fetal homicide laws. At least Eight states have penalty enhancement laws for crimes against pregnant women. These laws are considered different from fetal homicide laws because they do not create a separate criminal charge for the loss of the fetus. Jenny, do you agree with fetal homicide laws and do you think it matters whether a baby is born alive when it comes to sentencing? So I'll say that I do agree with the Lacey and Connor law, but Otherwise, when it comes to like the fetal homicide laws, I think it's more complicated. I would not typically say a fetus is a person that has rights. However, I do think a person should be charged for killing an unborn child, especially if their intention was to do so. In this case, Scott clearly intended to kill both Lacey and Connor, but in a different situation, like if an unborn child was killed during a car accident, I'm less inclined to say that the perpetrator should be charged with something like manslaughter or, I don't know, any second-degree murder for killing the unborn child. To me, I think it's more of like a case-by-case basis. I don't think it particularly matters whether the baby was born alive. If the baby was born alive, I would agree that should affect sentencing again because of um, intention. And I think that these can get really tricky because there have been women who have had miscarriages and then were charged with homicide when it was completely out of their control. So I think fetal homicide laws, they can become a very slippery slope. Some people say that these kinds of laws can also create like quote unquote policing of people's pregnancies. And if you're prenatally negligent, you can be charged for that. And some people have also pointed out that it lessens women's autonomy during pregnancy. And I also think that it can lead to greater restrictions on abortion too. There's like kind of a lot of legalese to it, which I think also makes it very complicated. But something that the ACLU of Florida has pointed out that I thought was interesting was that they had urged, quote, any money damages should go to the prospective parent who should be compensated for the loss of her child and the harm she suffered when her choice to continue a pregnancy to term was frustrated. The understandable impulse to compensate the loss of a fetus, we argued, should not lead to an award of damages to the stillborn fetus. Instead, to the prospective parent's loss could and should be compensated within the existing tort law framework. So, I can definitely understand that having the death of a fetus shown more within the compensation of the pregnant woman and, I mean, I guess the sentencing too. I think it's really complicated. What do you think, Del? 
So I definitely support fetal homicide laws. I think they're necessary because for, in my personal belief, a preborn baby is a person. And I think that any crime against a person should be sentenced separately. I definitely understand where you're coming from when it comes to the possibility of a woman's pregnancy being policed. But I honestly don't think that would be much of an issue because there is medical documentation that you would be able to give for a miscarriage. And when it comes to violence, there's typically external signs that violence has happened to you. When it comes to having a penalty enhancement versus a fetal homicide law, I just get the sense that sentence enhancement doesn't do enough. I think that fetal homicide laws punish people for taking away a life that has started, whether it's in utero or outside. I don't think that it matters if a baby is born alive, but definitely if a baby is born alive. I think everyone can agree that personhood definitely is there. And so why wouldn't we treat that as a separate crime, just like we would do if the child was born under normal circumstances and something happened to that child? That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the murder of Lacey Peterson. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the sinking of the MV Saywall Ferry. As always, stay safe.